Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com I'm Sarah. And I'm Beth. We are lawyers, mothers, and hosts of the bipartisan podcast, Pantsuit Politics. Just as we differ in political philosophy, we've arranged our lives in very different ways, from our careers to where we live to our choices around marriage and family. But we have more in common than divides us. In a world that increasingly defaults to false dichotomies, we explore the messiness of living wisely. Choices, trade-offs, priorities, and grace of living a nuanced life. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for another episode of The Nuanced Life. If you have not joined us on Instagram, both at Pantsuit Politics and The Nuanced Life, we would love to meet you over there. We would also truly appreciate your reviews in the Apple Podcast Player, which help other people find The Nuanced Life. Today, we are going to talk about Me Too and the church. If you do not usually listen to the Pantsuit Politics podcast, and that's fine, politics is not for everyone, you definitely should listen to this week because I'm confident that all the listeners of The Nuance Life are going to love our conversation with Rachel Held Evans this week, so you guys should definitely check it out. And so we're going to get into that in our main segment. First, as always, we will begin with listener commemorations and feedback. If I haven't mentioned this before, I love our commemorations. So we'll start with Kellyanne, who says, I am starting my first school year as a stay-at-home parent to a toddler and baby. Watching my colleagues get ready for and start new school years brings many feelings. I know being home is the right choice for me and my family this year, but part of me misses getting ready for new students in the new school year. Thank you for this part of the program to pay witness to the changes in life, big and small. Kellyanne, congratulations uh-huh. on your decision, which I'm sure was a tough one, and you just have to know you're in the right season for now, and there will be another season. And thank you for sharing this with us. Godspeed with that toddler and that baby, Kellyanne. Godspeed. You can do it. We also heard from Sierra. She said, I just wanted to share and celebrate my decision to start an antidepressant. I've struggled with underlying anxiety and depression for years, especially after being diagnosed with fibromyalgia, but I've always downplayed my symptoms since I'm high functioning. I've seen many people struggle with severe depression and anxiety, and since I'm able to shower and go to school every day, I thought I was just being dramatic and that maybe I was just meant to be a neutral feeling worrier. After finding an amazing primary doctor, however, I've come to realize that I don't have to always feel this way and that there's no shame in asking for help. I've had to learn that there is no right way to experience depression and anxiety and make space for myself amongst other people who struggle differently. I'm so glad I've decided to start this medication. I'm so grateful that your podcast has given people the opportunity to celebrate the moments in life that are usually glossed over, ignored, or silenced. I think that's beautiful, Sierra, and I know that's a tough decision. Mm. I also love that you thought of it as something to commemorate because I think those decisions where we're really saying, here's how I'm going to treat my body are worth commemorating. Mm -hmm. And I hope this is really helpful and supportive for you. 
Rebecca also wrote to say, I love your commemorations each week and have one to add. I have started studying Spanish and am celebrating that tonight is my first lesson with an online tutor. It is probably more accurate to say that I've picked Spanish up again after 20 years since I stopped after high school Spanish. I have often regretted that I did not keep it up since I think knowing another language is very important and very much want it for my children. But I always thought I did not have time for a class, that my accent was bad. If you don't learn as a kid, you lose all capacity to be fluent. I finally realized that all my limitations are completely self-imposed and unnecessary. No one cares that my accent is terrible. There are so many incredible online resources that make it possible to learn on your own time and schedule. I can manage to devote 20 to 30 minutes a day interspersed with my other activities. Best of all, it is not completely end goal focused. I may not achieve true fluency, but can absolutely grow my capacity to understand another culture and communicate in another language. I feel so positive about this step toward accomplishing something that I think is really important and that I had written off as impossible as an adult. Felicidades, Rebecca. I'm sure my accent just then was terrible, but that's awesome. It is awesome. It's inspiring to you. This is something I've been thinking about a lot lately. We had a listener tag us on Facebook in a post about um, putting her children in an immersion program. If there were one near me, you better believe my kids would be in it. I think it's such a gift to yourself and to your children to have another language be part of your life. So congratulations. We also heard from Katie, and this has to be one of my most favorite commemorations we've ever gotten. She says, I wanted to share that after two excruciatingly difficult, wonderful, trying, and inspiring years of building a tech-enabled startup, I have decided to return the remaining funds to my investors and shut the company down. This is virtually unheard of in fast-growth, venture capital-backed startups, and also is one of the hardest decisions of my life. The decision to close affects not only my identity and my resume, but most of all, my ego. For the first time in my professional life, I have no clear direction, and that's so uncomfortable for someone like me, a type A, firstborn daughter of an immigrant. But I trust that the time and energy I now have to tend to my health and relationships will allow for open doors when the time is right. Thanks so much to you both for celebrating and commemorating both the wonderful and the sad. Good for you, Katie. Good for you. So brave. That is real bravery right there. It's a big deal. And again, I just love that you think of that as something to commemorate because the the courage to walk away from something. Mm-hmm. It's massive, and so few of us are willing to do it. Yep, especially when she said, like, it's wrapped up in your ego. That's the hardest type of change. And and to not have a clear direction next, I think we would all be so much better off if we had lots more moments with no clear direction so mm-hmm. that you can really decide, you can really be in charge of yourself. Katie, I know that good things are ahead for you. Yep, I agreed. Okay, Mike from Silver Spring wrote to us, and I have to share that he started his message Hello, redheaded wonder duo. (laughs) Super fan. Heard the first episode of Fancy Politics when it first aired and have been along for the ride ever since. Thank you, Mike. That is awesome. This is the first time he wrote to either show, and he wanted to tell us about our last episode on caregiving, that in his life, caregiving has a more specific definition. And he said there's still a lot of diversity opinion, even among caregivers, but there is a dimension that we only recently grazed over, which for me, he says, differentiates the caregiver from the parent or other other so-called caregiving roles, stakes and expectations. For the Mm. caregiver of a sick or ill relative, the stakes and expectations are more severe, higher, harder to calibrate, accompanied by extreme and complex emotions. Mike works with people who have pulmonary hypertension, and he says... 
For a caregiver of a sick or ill relative, the stakes and expectations are more severe, higher, harder to calibrate, accompanied by extreme and complex emotions. The stakes for a pulmonary hypertension person's caregiver, for example, could be life or death. The, pa- the parent, less so. Expectations for the rare carer, similarly, are so much harder to gauge. And the suddenness and unexpectedness of most disease, again, sets them apart from the child of the aging parent. To me, the term caregiver has a specialness to it that denotes someone who did not choose this course nor could they even have anticipated it. And the stakes of what they do are tremendous. I shared this in the hopes that you could perhaps elevate this kind of caregiving in future episodes and perhaps invite a guest to share their experience as the caregiver of a rare disease patient. Thank you for your good work. And I I think that, Mike, that's absolutely something we need to do because you're right. It is very different to be caregiving in the sense of I have to help someone along in life in the normal course of things. Versus I have to help someone and my help is the difference in whether they remain with me or not and remain comfortable or not. So that's something that we can definitely spend more time on. We also got this awesome message from Freddie, who is a German mother of three living in Germany. And she was talking about how she's seeing this trend in Germany, which is usually, you know, we we hold Europe up as the gold standard of like, look, they know how to raise their kids and their schools are all perfect. And she's saying she's seeing this trend of less and less risk for kids there as well. Like when her oldest child started, they were allowed to climb any tree. And then the next child, they were only allowed to climb certain trees. And now they're not allowed to climb any trees. The reason was not the reason was not school management, but concerned parents and the school's insurance afraid of the consequences if a child fell. At the root of this need for perceived safety, in my opinion, lies the failure to accept that your life is in danger. As long as you are alive, or as we say in Germany, das Leben ist immer lebensfreudig. I don't know if I pronounced that right. I hope I got it anywhere close. If something happens to you, it also isn't just fate or just seen as shit happens, but it must be somebody's fault. Somebody you sue because hot coffee is dangerously hot if you bounce it on your lap. And if something happens to a child, it's the parent's fault or the school's or whoever else's. The only problem I see with keeping the kids safe all the time is the question of when do you want to stop the constant surveillance? It makes much more sense to accept certain risks, trust yours and other parents and kids' common sense, and lets the kids grow into taking responsibility for themselves and learning risk management step by step. It gives the kids and the adults, too, so much more confidence that they are the agents of their own life and that they can help themselves and others if things go wrong. And this will make them even more happier and more resilient than a few bumps will ever do. Up to now, that seems to have worked very well for us. My daughter turned 16 in July and at the moment spending four weeks in Australia with her friends. She was not afraid of flying halfway around the world all by herself. I'm not sure I would send my 16-year-old um, to Australia, but that's amazing. And I think she's right. I think it's just like we just can't. Nobody wants to accept that we can't control the all the environment, and sometimes there's just inherent risk. When Chad and I were in Europe last spring, we met a group of students who had just graduated from high school. There were five of them, and they were just backpacking across Europe between high school and college. And they were the loveliest kids, and they were telling us about all their plans, and one of them was a real history buff, and so she was kind of forcing the others to go see specific monuments and things like that. But we talked about how we want to raise a child that we would say, sure, go to Europe for a month backpacking between high school and college, Mm -hmm. because that kind of tenacity and independence and fearlessness, you know, you just looked at those kids and you thought your parents did a great job. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So hopefully more of that from us as parents. And it's going to be a journey from where we are to there. And speaking of journeys, we need to talk about the church and the Me Too movement. And so we'll do that next. Next. 
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So we've spent a lot of time on fancy politics on the Me Too movement. And then as the grand jury report from Pennsylvania came out, we talked a little bit about the Catholic Church and the crisis within that church of abuse. And then we've gotten more news about how that abuse of power is not limited to the Catholic context. And so, Mm -hmm. Sarah, you want to talk a little bit about what else we have learned in the recent weeks? You had a listener that reached out to us and pointed out a story happening at Willow Creek Community Church, which is a um, large, prominent church in the evangelical community outside Chicago. It's been led by the Reverend Bill Hybels for several decades, and he was recently forced to resign after there were allegations of sexual misconduct against him. And at first, they sort of, the church sort of stood by him, and then the co-pastors who were meant to replace him, one of which was a woman, um, both resigned saying like there had been one of his former secretaries came out and confirmed m- much of the bad reporting. And they really said, we didn't handle this right. We need to resign to show that we take this seriously, and we believe these women— and it's just been, I think it's been getting a lot of news play, but there's been a lot of these stories over the evangel- across the evangelical community about predominant men and their sexual misconduct, their sexual harassment, and the ways in which the churches have protected them. So Katie wrote to us in a message that I think puts all of this in context. She said, evangelicalism has so much sin to answer for as well. The first cogent recognition I had of sexual abuse in the church was when I read the Catherine Marshall book, Christie, deeply popular among church-going tweens for a couple of generations. But it's not just church. Also, the whole USA Swim scandal, USA Gymnastics slash Larry Nasser, Ohio State Wrestling, Denny Hastert, English Soccer, and so on. Sports, like religion, fills a void for many, and people seeking the approval of God in the case of the church or neighbors in the case of sports can lead to such wretched consequences. And any other opportunity for adults to prey on the really great and important relationships and influence of non-custodial adults in the lives of young people. I've been watching The Crown on Netflix. How much is Elizabeth portrayed as a suffering servant and really torn between the people she is supposed to serve and those eager to protect the institution. It's a useful lens to see how much the apparatus of a thousand-year-old institution can insulate a leader from day to day, even a fictionalized one. I also ponder how much of a line can be drawn to our own political institutions. Is the presidency worth the danger of an unworthy office holder? Presidencies are tricky offices, which is partly why the trend toward authoritarianism rather than parliament governments. So I think Katie is making the point, like, we just have a structural abuse of power across our politics, our churches, our universities, Everywhere you look right now, to me, the the next wave of Me Too has to be focused more on how do we prevent this from happening again. We're in that retribution kind of place right now, right? Let's hold people to account. Let's name it. Let's find some justice from it. But the next phase must be about our relationships to power. I love the crown analogy. Also, because I love The Crown, one of my favorite scenes of The Crown that I've talked about a lot is 
Queen Elizabeth and her family were so traumatized by her uncle's abdication of the throne because it really threatened the entire institution of the monarchy. And there's this moment where she wants to go out of order and appoint a staff person who's not in the order of seniority. And the other um, sort of head staff person says, you know, this is what happened with your uncle. Individualization is where the rot gets in. Thinking that you know what's best instead of following the rules of the institution is what happens. And I think it is, I think about that quote all the time because I think it is a, a paradoxical statement in that sometimes it is incredibly true and sometimes it is incredibly dangerous. And I think what you see with her that is directly analogous to the church is she wasn't protected from the individual impacts of her institution. She basically ruined her own sister's life and saw that up close and personal. But when you make choice after choice after choice that are small sacrifices, then the stakes get higher because I think in our brains subconsciously we tell ourselves, well, I've had to make all these sacrifices because it was so important to the institution to protect the institution. So if I say no longer I'm not going to protect the institution, then all those sacrifices were for naught. Everything I gave up, every bad person I protected, every time I looked the other way, every legal settlement I paid out. You know, I think this is true in churches and in in public institutions. It's like every time you make the first bad call, then you're protecting those bad calls. It's like sunk costs. You know, humans aren't good at that. And so when you make one small sacrifice for the institution, then it just keeps building and building and building until we're on this flaming fire that threatens to burn the whole thing down because we just decided, well, if I if I was wrong now, then I might have been wrong then. And oh, my God, what did I sacrifice along the way to protect the institution? And so it's like the stakes just keep rising. And that's why I think it's so important to like we talked about last week, to have people inside institutions in which everything is not at stake. Like you said, like the power, the power becomes the end all be all, as opposed to understanding that this is a role, this is not my identity, that this could all fall apart and everyone would survive. So that this, so you can just release some of the pressure and the stakes aren't so high that you can justify the abuse of children or the abuse of women or ongoing sexual harassment. And I also think that our definition of power over others within these institutions is is the ground zero of preventing more Me Too moments. Mm. Because the idea that someone can make or break your career or that someone has a direct line to God and therefore must be infallible and treated differently or is in charge of your sports program and therefore holds your opportunity to someday make millions of dollars perhaps in his hands. We have we have concentrated too much power and accepted the expansion of power and accepted in in many ways the fiction of that power and allowed it to multiply through our acceptance to a point where people have so much fear about stepping up and doing the right thing. And I don't know exactly how we chip away at that, but what I know is that until we give people more agency to step up and say, this is wrong, I don't care what title this person has or what standing this person has in the community, this was wrong, we're going to just repeat this over and over. Because we have been, right? Mm -hmm. Harvey Weinstein is not the first of his kind. And you can go in any organization 
the halls of Congress. The reason that Me Too has been so powerful is because women across America have said, oh, yeah, yep, that sounds right. That happened to me. I know 10 people who have that story. It is so baked into our culture. And I think it's because within our institutions, there is gross, um, there's just a gross misunderstanding of power. I think so much of it is the way that power affects the individual's identity within the institution. I'm talking about the higher ups. I mean, because the queen becomes the queen and not just Elizabeth, a human woman, Mm -hmm. because Harvey Weinstein becomes the Weinstein Company and not just Harvey, a man. And Reverend Bill Hybels becomes the prominent Reverend Bill Hybels of Willow Creek Church, not Bill, who's just a regular guy. Like, you know what I mean? I think that that's what we, people and people take in that identity and the power begins to affect how they see themselves. And like you said, how everyone around them sees themselves as opposed to saying, I am a human being in service to a very human institution. And that is always something we should keep in mind. I think that's right. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. One of the things that we started talking about with Rachel Held Evans that made my brain take off in 20 directions, which is pretty much a theme throughout that conversation. I wish we could have had seven days with her. But one of the things that I really started thinking about, she talked about how the evangelical community in America has a real story going on that it is oppressed and that Christians are one Congress away from being stripped of all of their rights. And I think that that sense of Christianity in particular as oppressed on the one hand and then led by people who are so powerful within the church on the other hand really creates a breeding ground for abuse of power. Mm-hmm. And part of what I was thinking about, and this is a little bit of a tangent, but I want to talk to you about it, is that in Rachel Held Evans' book, Inspired, she talks a lot about how the Bible is saying God loves the oppressed, the poor, the meek shall inherit the earth. A theme throughout the Bible is that on the ground, present, raw suffering brings you closest to God. And as I was reading it, I started thinking about how, you know, most of us who are like white middle class Americans raised in the Christian church are more like the rich young ruler and and have more of that. It's easier to get through the eye of a needle than we would like to admit. And I wonder if part of the reason that we've created this oppression story is because we we just feel like we need it to be loved in the context of a Bible that talks so much about God loving the oppressed. I feel like we are feeding ourselves lies about ourselves as being oppressed within the context of America, which are not true. As she points out at one delightful moment in the book, you know, getting a greeting card that says happy holidays is not the oppression of Christians. Mm-hmm. So we've we've built an entirely false narrative about who we are. 
And then within that, we have so elevated many of our faith leaders and frankly, so elevated the president of the United States right now within that community. You can just see why abuse of power happens and why it leads to this sense that women in particular don't have much agency. It goes back to the thing, the same thing, which is the stakes are high. And so people want to justify. But, you know, you can see it in so many venues. But with the church, like you were saying, the stakes are high because we're persecuted. And I, we talked about with Rachel Evans. The stakes are high because it's this cosmic battle between good and evil. And so what what can't you justify when heaven and hell are on the lines? I mean, those are pretty high stakes. And if you're talking about a minister who you feel is saving souls, then what could you not justify in the face of that? If you're a Catholic and you feel like you're talking about priests that, you know, have a direct line to God or are, you know, are the, the voice of God, then what can't you justify in the presence of that? But it doesn't just have to be religion. You know, when you're the queen and you have an entire economy built around your family, what can you not justify in the face of that? And that, you know, it's I don't know if there is a way to short circuit that because we have this really adept ability to perpetuate confirmation bias on ourselves. And if our monkey brain has decided that this is essential to our survival, then there's nothing we won't do to protect it. And the super double-edged sword is there's nothing we can't convince is essential to our survival. But Penn State football is essential to no one's survival. And the monarchy is essential to no one's survival. And a job or a promotion or a movie getting made, all these sort of things you see is particularly in the Hollywood context. The point of doing the right thing is, it's, <laughs> I keep coming back to Spike Lee. Spike Lee, do the right thing. That's it. Yeah, that's it. Do the right thing. It doesn't really matter what's on the line if it's the right thing to do. You know, I think if it's, if there's a child being abused or someone exploiting their power, then no one said that you can do the right thing with no risk to yourself or the outcomes in your own life. I think that's just, but our brains are so, so you know, so adept at talking ourselves out of it and, and justifying behavior to ourselves based on what we've convinced ourselves is essential. So how do we move forward from here? You know, that's a question that I keep asking myself, especially about the church. And I saw this beautiful thread on Twitter from someone named Dr. Susan Reynolds about being at mass and the priest giving a homily, acknowledging all of the abuses of the church. And she said he affirmed the statement on the bishop's bishop's resignation. He concluded by calling for radical lay-led structural reform. Then he sat down. And then in the fifth row, a dad stood up. How, he pleaded, tell us how. His voice was shaking and determined and terrified. His collared shirt was matted to his back with sweat. Jaws dropped. My eyes filled with tears. I've belonged to call and response parishes. This isn't one. This is a big, middle-of-the-road parish in a wealthy-ish southeast college town. In such context, it's hard to imagine a more subversive act than doing what that dad just did. The priest stood up again. He looked the dad in the eyes, and he answered him slowly and haltingly and thoughtfully. The whole thing was so stunning, I don't even remember what he said. But what he didn't say was, sir, please have a seat, or we can talk after Mass. Mm. And I thought that was such a great reminder of how probably the best answer that we have is moving power out of one preacher, one priest— One producer. One producer, 
one CEO, mm-hmm. right? And taking responsibility as the laity, whether that's in a church or in our politics or in our businesses, to stand up more often and say, how? What can we do? You know, how can we call this out for what it is and take over and and be radical in our demands for a more ethical community? I think what's so essential to that process, too, is looking the ugliness of what humanity is capable of and owning your position in that humanity. To me, one of the most brilliant parts of Rachel Held Evans' book that we didn't get to talk about enough is the prophets. And the prophets don't say, look at this ugliness, now trust me to lead you out of it. They say, look at this ugliness we're all a part of. Recognize it. Recognize it and yearn for something better knowing that we're all flawed in our approaches. And to me, I think that's so essential is to say, I could have done this too. I could have looked the other way. I'm a human being with the same psychology and instincts and evolution at play in my own brain as anyone else. So recognize that you could and try to think about how you could prevent it. Think about what you would do. We've talked about this on both shows before, practicing saying, no, not in my house. No, not right now. No, I'm not going to stand for this. No, I don't see the truth in that. It's hard. It's so, so hard. And I think recognizing our capacity to do that and fighting every day, that instinct is essential. I've been thinking a lot about how America had founding fathers, but what we are creating right now, I think, are sustaining mothers. Mm. I think the survival of the church depends on the women stepping up to lead the church right now. And I think the survival of our republic will depend on women stepping up to lead it. Because I think that women are showing a unique capacity to look at power and say, no, you're just a person. Mm-hmm. You're just a person with a title, and that's not going to do it. And I think it's not a surprise that for the evangelical community, the, the people who are saying, wait a second, are not people named Franklin and Bill and John. They're people named Jen and Rachel and Nadia and Diana. You know, it's we are being led right now. I think the, the, the modern day prophets are overwhelmingly women. And I think that That calling exists for all of us to just stand up and say, I have not been chosen in any way by the existing power structures, but I choose myself Mm -hmm. because this moment demands it. And I choose my voice and I choose hope that I won't fall to the despair that sometimes moments like this can bring on all of us, especially if you still very much believe in those institutions and those institutions have been sources of power and life and hope and love for you to say, I still choose this institution. I still choose this path. I think there is a better way, even if I don't have all the answers right now. I know that's hard. I know that's hard for people. I feel that with institutions I greatly love and in ways in which they've struggled. But the, you know, the paradox of loving something and loathing what it can become is true in so many ways in human life. And so I don't know why human institutions would be any different. Yeah, I'm so much deeper in church right now than I could have ever anticipated or frankly desired. 
And I have no real explanation for that other than wanting to be part of the solution. And I think that that that's what it is, right? I mean, I think any anything you look at, you can choose inertia, you can choose exit, or you can choose to be part of the solution. And I'm not going to judge anybody else's choices, particularly based on very different life experiences from mine. But I think knowing what my life experiences are, any choice other than try to be part of the solution for the institutions that I really believe need to be enduring for our society, you know, that that seems like the only option right now. On that note, we will move on to the next segment of the show and share inspiration to keep you going throughout the week. We had a listener, Jessica, reach out and share a beautiful quote from the Common Prayer, a liturgy for ordinary radicals that we love so much we shared on Pantsuit Politics this week, and we're going to share it here. Peacemaking doesn't mean passivity. It is the act of interrupting injustice without mirroring injustice. The act of disarming evil without destroying the evildoer. The act of finding a third way that is neither fight nor flight, but the careful arduous pursuit of reconciliation and justice. It is about a revolution of love that is big enough to set both the oppressed and the oppressors free. Thank you for joining us for another episode of The Nuanced Life. We'll be back with you on Pantsuit Politics on Friday and here next Wednesday. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Nuance Life is produced by Dylan Garvin. Elise Knapp is our production assistant. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. The Nuance Life is listener supported. For $5 a month, you'll receive an extra episode of The Nuance Life at patreon.com slash The Nuance Life. You can connect with us on our website, thenuancelife.com, and follow us on Instagram.